Welcome to The Sport Psychologist. Today we talk to Jesse Barr, accredited sport and exercise psychologist and Olympian. Among the thousands of pearls of wisdom Jesse shares, she explains why athletes are susceptible to mental difficulties, her own experiences, the myths around the alleged magic around sport psychology. Actually, she puts a lot of myths to bed in this one. It's really good. Enjoy. If sport and exercise is so good for you and your mental health, why are so many athletes depressed? This is what gets thrown at me all the time. Yeah, and you know what? It's really not an unfair question to ask. And I think it's what that exact question was something I asked myself back during my master's. Um, and it's what kind of got me to follow this route, to follow, you know, the whole way through a master's and a PhD to try and understand better, like the mental health challenges of elite sport. Um I suppose what interested me at the start was I train. I used to be in a training group in the UK and one of my training partners took a year out to recover from depression. And I was thinking, this person's at the top of their game. They've been to Olympics. They're trying to, com- trying to compete at another one. You know, what, what is there to, to cause this? And what I realized is that, you know, mental health disorders, mental illness, mental health issues, whatever you want to call them, they don't pick or choose. You know, it doesn't it doesn't decide, well, this person doesn't have a lot of money or this person has a lot more challenges in their life. So I'm going to affect this person on this person's a top class athlete. So, you know, they they don't have a lot of problems. Unfortunately, anyone is at risk of a mental health issue. And kind of in my research, I realize is that, you know, sport is not necessarily I'm not going to say that sport is the most highly pressured and the most challenging job you can have, because that's not fair on people in other very high pressured environments we were just talking about medicine you know yourself and I know from personal experience how stressful that can be but what is different about sport is that it presents kind of unique challenges that you wouldn't have in other areas of life and other kind of um jobs so that's kind of where you see that even though exercise and regular you know physical activity which you're doing as an athlete you're doing it every day is good for your mental health it's good to a point But if you ever read the research, it's usually like a moderate level of activity for maybe 150 hours or 150 minutes a week is what is kind of recommended. But elite athletes aren't exercising to stay fit and stay healthy. They're doing it for a goal. And when suddenly you're striving for a goal and that exercise becomes your job, the kind of positive aspects of doing exercise kind of get stripped away Um, and it, it kind of all of the kind of more challenging and pressurized aspects of being an athlete kind of overtake and kind of nullify the positives that you get, you know, the kind of adrenaline and the oxytocin release and all those positive hormones and all those positive feelings that you get from it. So, yeah, I suppose in a long winded answer, but that's kind of why as much as people who do sport are keeping fit and keeping active, the the goal of what they're doing is very different in general uh, in the real world a normal joe and josephine soap who were told if you feel a bit down yourself we all say go outside get yourself some fresh air get the blood pumping Hmm. even if it's just a walk so for an elite athlete then would i be silly to suggest would that not be the advice you'd give them or would you tell them actually do go outside and smell the roses don't run don't be worrying about heart rate or do you say maybe just sit down and watch tv watch an episode of real housewives or something yeah I suppose it's a hard one to answer I think it's like working with athletes you kind of need to get to know them um and you know perfectionism is a quality that is 
a part is inherent in a lot of athletes to get to the level that you're at you need to be some sort of perfectionist so I suppose getting to know the athlete and what works like some people might need to get outside but actually going outside without the goal of you know you're not going out to train you're not going out with a purpose like I need to do this 5k you know this many times and this many reps and this is the kind of heart rate I need to be hitting you just go out and just go out and just jog just listen put on music that you like and go for a jog or you know find out what that person enjoys doing kind of stripping it back to why they got involved a lot of people a lot of people especially say example I'm from athletics so runners love to run but take out the kind of the the pressure of having a heart rate monitor or having time on it now it's quite alien to most people to do that but just do it for the enjoyment don't track it don't monitor it just go out and do it go for a walk somewhere nice you know get that bit of green exercise or if it is you know guilt-free recovery and just binge on netflix you know it's 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 not to say that because sport can be challenging it doesn't mean that people don't love it and some people actually they want to compete in it but it's the pressure of performing and chasing goals and you know achieving something is where it can be such a big challenge um you've articulated really well how you know sport especially if you're at it at that elite and professional level you know you're constantly striving to improve 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 mm. and you can see how absolutely that would you know, bring pressures onto your mind and your lifestyle. And the same can be true for lots of other industries. But at the same time, I suppose to a lay person watching, because what athletes achieve seems so unachievable for most of us, you really are aiming for the stars. Would that be part of the reason maybe why sometimes susceptibility for, you know, depression or mental health disorders could be a little bit higher in that population? Yeah, 100%. Like there's loads of like the research that I've been doing would kind of, outline a few different kind of you know real um strong factors for why athletes are particularly susceptible um if you think about it athletes tend to fall in the so the age range where you're most susceptible to the onset of a mental health issue tends to be kind of 16 to it's anywhere from 25 to 35 depending on the paper you read basically so really in your early kind of teen to adult life is when you're most susceptible because you're probably going through transitions and changes and most athletes when they are hitting that elite level fall into that age range so already just by the nature of being at a certain age and being you know in terms of hormones and changes and you know you know kind of so changes in your social life and in your working life and all those kind of things that go on outside of sport you're already susceptible just by the nature of your age and then if you take into a sport is and I heard uh, Kira Losty mention on your podcast as well she used the word microcosm and this is something that we kind of see is that sport is like a microcosm of like a full career so you might have a full career in sport that only spans 10 years whereas someone who goes into a, a general career they could be working in that for 50 years so you're going through the kind of demands the pressure the pressure to achieve and perform um, so yeah I suppose What do you think about that microcosm and that idea that you are kind of working in a career that spans a very short time, but you're trying to get everything you would out of a general career? And so there's a lot of transitions that happen within sports. So, you know, the transitions from maybe junior to senior levels, which can be a very tricky transition to to manage transitioning out of sport, where you're transitioning from kind of sport into normal life and putting in quotation marks you know some athletes have compared that to like you know the afterlife 
So like some, you know, there's some quotes that say that athletes die twice when they really die. Uh, but their first death is when their athletic, their athletic, the death of their athletic career, which is very, very morbid. But for some people, that's how it feels. Um, and then there's things like injuries, um, you know, to think that like one wrong step off a step off a, you know, off a curb or one wrong move in a training session could be what causes the end of your career you know and it's it's so inst it's kind of so quick to change and it's very it's a very unstable or in unstable 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 career and then again something Kier Lossi mentioned which is something that you know throw the research throws up a lot is this idea of aesthetic identity so not only are athletes doing their sport because you know that it's their job but it's also who they are so you usually start a sport at a certain age because you love it. And then as you become better, you start to kind of have pre extra pressures, pressure to qualify for teams, for competitions. And then there might be money involved. It might become something you're funded or paid to do, you're sponsored to do. So there's expectation. And with all that, your identity so certainly suddenly moves from a person who plays a sport or does a sport to the athlete you know, some I'm so-and-so as a footballer rather than I'm so-and-so who plays football or I'm so-and-so who plays, I'm a soccer player. And that becomes your identity. So, you know, if you're injured or you're laid off or you have to retire, suddenly that identity that you've developed over a short but kind of significant time in your life is kind of all taken away. So, you know, there's so many different ways you could say that the sporting career is more is um, a very challenging sphere to be in um especially for someone's mental health so high pressure over a short period of time and could be the rug could be pulled from under you at any mm. point be it through injury being dropped off a team suddenly somebody coming up behind you all of a sudden is a lot better or somebody else comes in and transfers to your area and all of a sudden everything you've worked so hard for and you've wrapped all up in yourself is gone but in the on the meanwhile there's lots of other people who might never reach the, the very, very, very heady heights, but are still well known and still respected for what they do. Yeah, 100%. And I don't think athletic identity is separate to the level you achieve in your sport. You don't have to you don't have to be an elite athlete to have a strong athletic identity. And this idea of athletic identity is where you identify yourself as an athlete. And you might be someone who's just goes out and does 10Ks, you know, you know, local 10Ks and fun runs. But you may identify yourself as a runner because it's what everyone knows you as someone who goes training every day. You're always in your Lycra. You're known as a runner. So that athletic identity is not necessarily tied up with the level that you've achieved. So, OK, while elite sport is unique in that it comes with the, you know, the media attention and that kind of burden of expectation. I heard Mark Campbell mention um, and I really like that it's the, like instead of you know the burden of expectation, it is kind of like a weight on an elite athlete's shoulders someone who hasn't reached the elite level but striving to and maybe is always trying or sub elite or never quite got you know never quite got there they still have their own pressures they have still their own internal pressures and expectations of themselves and goals that they want to achieve so you know as much as a lot of my work works around elite athletes i think anyone who trains at all can develop that kind of athletic identity which can be what gets you to your goal but can also on the flip side be what makes it so challenging when things aren't going your way do you remember 
back in the day when you first began running, do you remember maybe the first time that you realised people saw you as Jesse the runner or you felt a bit of pressure? It was quite late on in my, well, I call it career. I don't think it was a career when I was 12, but um, <laughs> it was definitely, I would was it even in school? Not even, I don't even think in school because I trained as part of a group um, in Ferrybank in Redmond, Waterford. And back when I was training, it was a really, really high level junior club. So the girls I trained with were, you know, national champions, you know, European medalists. So every time you lined up on the track at home, um, when I was still in school, it was like lining up in a national final at training. So I wasn't really the athlete because there were so many other people that were better than me. And I kind of saw myself as just a training partner and just loved coming. And I was the social athlete. Um, it was only when I went to college and kind of I was training, you know, every day I'd moved up a level in terms of kind of my training and the the kind of focus I was putting on it. So people who didn't know me in school, maybe saw me going training every day um, you know, skipping out on nights out and skipping out on things at weekends because I training or competitions. So I think it was only really when I went to college and I kind of met people who hadn't known me previously, they saw me as the athlete and maybe my friends who knew me all along, it was only as I got really good and they started seeing me travel to competitions and, you know, see me on TV where they were like, okay, Jessie really is the athlete. I know she went training, but now I really see what she does. So I suppose it depends on who you surround yourself with um, and who like who's known you kind of for for what you've done. And I think that's probably probably depended on who who met me at what stage in my life. And at what point for you yourself, did you maybe mm. wake up one morning and go, oh, I, I'm actually doing pretty good at this or oh, I, I there are people are people know me or people are expecting me to do well in these kind of things. Um, I don't think there was a time where I woke up and thought, wow you know I'm I'm you know there's pressure on me I think it was like in the year I remember 2011 the summer 2011 always always stands out to me because it was kind of my breakthrough year before that I you know I trained with people I hadn't made like a an Irish team other than at school level um so it was really that year that I was suddenly on Irish teams um you know I I broke an Irish under 23 record I made a European under 23 final and then suddenly I found myself at the World Championships with like my heroes in the sport, like Derv O'Rourke, Rob Heffernan. Um, I don't think David Gillick was there that year, but, you know, my heroes in athletics. Suddenly I wasn't watching them on TV like I had been maybe earlier in the summer or the summer before. I was there with them and I was at the Senior World Championships. And I think that was that competition was a big turning point for me in a positive way, because first of all it really solidified yeah this is what I want to be doing and this is something I can do and this these are this is where I belong but it also kind of made me realize that you know I went to this competition and you know I was at the training track and I saw the girl who went on to win the silver medal who went on to win a silver medal at the Olympics the following what did she win the gold can't remember but she won a medal at the Olympics the following year in the 400 meter hurdles my own event and I remember seeing her training and watching being like, oh, she's doing five runs to five, hurdle five. So which is basically five two hundreds. And I was like, I do that. She looks just as wrecked at the end of the session as I do. So why do I fear her so much? Because I'm seeing her vulnerable. I'm seeing, you know, you when you see these things on TV and all you see is the veneer of the athlete, you don't really see the work and the hard work, the, you know, the hard work and the, the blood, sweat and tears that goes into that kind of shiny veneer you see 
when the performance is happening. And I think that's kind of tied up in why when we see athletes coming out, especially initially when athletes were kind of coming forward with their stories about mental health issues and their how they suffered, you kind of thought, but how could they? They have it all. Look at them on the TV every every week. They look so glamorous. It's only when I was kind of there, I saw the human behind the athlete. And I was like, there's no reason I can't compete with these girls. They're okay. They look more toned or they look stronger. They're a few seconds faster. But I was like, there's no reason I can't be there too. And I think that was a turning point. And I think that summer was a turning point for people to kind of, you know, I kind of was on radars then, which I hadn't been before. So it was it was a great summer, but it did probably add a lot of pressure on my shoulders. And then you popped up the following year, then uh, the Olympics in 2012. Am I right on the relay team? I did. Yeah. So that was a yeah, that 2011 was a massive year because suddenly I went from kind of thinking about, you know, what tickets would I buy to go and watch in London to suddenly thinking, will I be able to get fam- tickets for my family if and when I qualify? And I was I was like, how did this happen? I was kind of thinking 2012 is not is too soon. I'll be too young. 2016 would be my realistic goal. And then it all got flipped. And I think it was just how quickly, again, as much as how quickly a career can turn sour and negative, how quickly you can actually change and you can suddenly find yourself on a different level after only a couple of months um, of really putting in the work. Um, and yeah, I found myself on the Olympic team um, with the relay girls. And it was just the most amazing experience. Like I have a framed picture of walking into the um, opening ceremony leading out the team I was right behind Katie Taylor I didn't lead out the team but I was right behind her so everyone knew I was there and it was yeah it was that taste of like this is the career that I want to have and I remember walking into that stadium being like I can't wait to do this again in Rio and unfortunately that didn't happen and you know for me I really think in that year between 2011 2012 that's where my athletic identity was really solidified in my head and in other people's and that's what made not getting to Rio so much more challenging because my one goal was I was going to be on that plane to Rio and nothing was going to stop me. And unfortunately, I had everything thrown at me injury wise that could have been. So, you know, as much as what I'm studying from a point of view of athletes, mental health, I've never I've been very lucky that I haven't uh, suffered from a clinical mental health issue. But I've definitely had times where I've had some symptoms of maybe depression or you know, I've definitely experienced some depressive moods because it really is. It's a really challenging environment to be in and it's very unforgiving. And that was exactly going to be my next question. Do you <laughs> think that the study you did, for example, in the UK and then when you came back to Ireland, uh, the study you were doing, the life you were living, the fact you knew so much about psychological theory, did that in any way help insulate you? I had all the knowledge, but I couldn't practice what I preached. That's what I was wondering. <laughs> Yeah, no, I really did. I really struggled with injury. And it's funny, I'm working as a sports psychologist now and I never sought the, the support of one. Um, because again, like you said, I kind of thought I know it. I don't need to go to talk to someone because I know this stuff. But, you know, you're a doctor. You wouldn't go to yourself to get a, you know, to be to have a, a checkup. I shouldn't be relying on my knowledge to diagnose or to kind of support myself. But at that time, I was naive and I kind of thought, I don't need this. I know what they're going to say, but I I needed that external voice, which I didn't seek out. And it's something I look back on and wish I had done. Um, And, you know, I really struggled with the injury and I was someone injuries that I'd had. I was someone who was always looking at what if and I hadn't done this, what could have been and always 
ruminating and looking at the past and feeling like very hard done by and how unfair this is and all the stuff you kind of encourage athletes not to do and try to focus on the now and focus on the lessons from this and I always thought what could I possibly learn this is so unfair why me you know all those things that when you hear an athlete um and hear an athlete say you try to discourage but all but all very understandable feelings too oh yeah oh yeah and that's why I think the work that I do now with athletes I really do I never want to say that you have an empathy for them because I don't have a sympathy I have an empathy I don't know what every single person's experience is but I can definitely empathize with how someone is feeling when they have similar feelings because I'm like I have been in similar situations I know how it feels to feel wronged by your sport or feel wronged by things out of your control um and yeah it is and I think you know at at that stage it went from you know this was my job this is the thing I loved this is the thing I was good at the thing that identified me and I was putting my heart and soul into it and was getting nothing out of it and it just felt very it was just very difficult um to come to terms with and you know even now sometimes I look back and think what could have been in my career and I still do have a much smaller chip but still a chip on my shoulder (laughs) call it like a, a crumb on my shoulder but I still have one it's very easy to look back now and think of all the things I should have done in the situation how I could have dealt with it better but that's that was how I did it I was young I was naive and it probably has informed my work much better so it could have made me the psychologist that I am from the experiences that I had do you think perhaps as well at the time that maybe if anyone in your life was thinking oh I'm not sure if Jessie is coping as well as this as she's putting on but did they also maybe think well you know she she's studying it she's working she's living the life of a sports psychologist so I'm sure she herself if she needs something she knows exactly where to go oh no uh if my mom listens to this she'll be going I told her I told her for years and she did she told me all the time she's like would you just do me one favor at some stage this year, please go and talk to a sports psychologist. And I'd kind of fob her off. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. And at the time, they were much harder to come by. You know, there were people working in it, you know, and we know them ourselves, the likes of Tig and Mark and Kate Kirby, but they weren't as easy accessible as they are now. They weren't, there was no psychologist working from within the Institute. So I didn't go out because I would have had to go out of my way to find them. Now, I probably wouldn't have to go that far, but I kind of made the decision that, no, I'll be fine. And my mom was literally begging me to go and I kind of kept fobbing her off kept fobbing her off and now I wish I'd listened you know a lot of people did recognize that you know I wasn't probably coping as well as I could but you know I just wanted to talk to people who knew me um, and I did and I used the social support around me and I was very very lucky to have such a amazing support network around me of people who were within and outside of the sport so but yeah it is the one thing I wish I had done because even even not coping with the injuries but just coping with you know, the demands of training and competition and just general psych skills and mental skills. I could have definitely been bet had had done better had I had that experience. But look, there'll always be something you look back on and think what could have been. This might be a question that can't really be answered. And if it is, feel free to say so. But uh, I suppose the big question is people will often ask me and I kind of I always give them the answer. It kind of depends on their life circumstance and what's going on in their heads and their lives around them. But people will ask me, let's say use two athletes who both run 400 meters both have a bad experience both can't make it one gets depressed the other doesn't why is that yeah I suppose you have to look at you know the factors around them the structures around them you know I mentioned social support and it's a really important factor in you know protecting an athlete's mental well-being so not necessarily just mental health but their just general well-being if someone has 
and this is not just for athletes, but having a good support network, people who provide different types of support, whether it's emotional support, that they're just that shoulder to cry on or kind of informational or kind of tangible support, people who will tell you how to do things or how to look after yourself or actually physically help you. Maybe it's if you're really busy having the dinner on the table, things like that. Having that support network, I think you don't value it until it's not there. Um, so I think that's something that I knew for me, I valued a lot because when I went away to the UK for two years and I had an injury, I struggled a lot more with it because I was suddenly away from the people who knew me really well and the people who I just wanted to be around when I felt a bit down. Um, so I think social support is something that's very underrated because it's just the people around you, but it's about using them when not just when you need them, but kind of always checking in. Um, so I think that could be one. I think the coping strategies that people have developed over time, so you could call it resilience, you know, if those people, one person gets depressed and the other doesn't, one person could have just developed better coping strategies. Maybe they've had experience of injuries or setbacks before and they've learned from them, whereas maybe the other person, this is the first time they've had this setback and now they don't really know how to cope. Um, and, you know, and then some people are probably just more predisposed to to ruminate and focus on the negatives. And some people might be better at applying that positive mindset. And same way as we're going through COVID now, how can we, you know, how can we pro apply, see the positives in this negative experience and in this challenge? Some people are better at doing that than others. And it is a skill that can be learned, but it is something that if you're not good at, has to be practiced. So there's lots of different reasons to say why some people respond why everyone responds differently to what could be the exact same situation. It just depends on the individual, you know, the factors and variables. People, people may say this is, this is an ad for sports psychologists and sports mm. psychology, but I suppose from listening <laughs> yeah. to what you've said and all the evidence you've cited throughout this interview, plus your own personal experience, I mm. think a lesson and maybe a bit of advice for people who might be interested in this field, or maybe people who are athletes or have athletes in their lives, that perhaps mm. the time to engage as a sports psych is not when things are bad, but maybe be checking in, you know, with some kind of regularity, if you can, if you have the facilities and that kind of stuff, before you hit the bump in the road, be familiar with somebody while you're on the street. 100%. Yeah, I think... The same way as you build in, you know, SNC and nutrition and physio, like people go to physios for checkups. You don't necessarily always wait to go to a physio. Now, obviously, not everyone does, but a lot of people will go to physios just to make sure, make sure, just check in. Everything's OK. You don't go when things are falling apart and your leg is literally hanging off by a thread. That's not the time you go. But yet psychology is often seen as that kind of quick fix, like, OK, I've tried everything else. I should go and see a psychologist for a session and see how you do. And unfortunately, you know, as well as I do, we do not have a magic wand. Um, a lot of what we say is not anything that's going to, you know, blow their minds and think, I never heard of this. This is new information. It's just a perspective. It's a way of thinking. It's different strategies that you probably are aware of, but haven't tried using. And it's just a bit of direction. And I think it's something, you know, I mentioned the word well-being. I think rather than waiting until something descends into a real issue, maybe even a clinical issue, be looking after your well-being and just having strategies. You know, every athlete now is talking about this no stone unturned attitude. And, you know, if you were to look at why one, athlete, you know, two athletes, you know, on the same field of play, why one performs well and the other doesn't, despite the fact they've done all the same physical training and physical preparation, it's something that's going on in their head that's, 
led one of them to succeed and one to not. But yet, when it comes to the idea of using a sports psychologist, there's still sometimes not as much, but still the attitude like, oh, I don't need that. I don't really believe in that. I don't think that's really for me. And it's like, if you think and you have memories and you worry or you get anxious or you get nervous or, you know, you feel down or you have struggles with confidence or motivation, that's all psychology. (laughs) You know, and I think people have the wrong idea of it being sitting on a couch lying down and someone's there with the glasses on the end of their nose it's it doesn't have to be that way and I think it's something that if you build in you know early on that it's just a really it's a really nice support to have just to check in with you know not to be relying on but just to have someone there in your corner I've definitely found that the attitude is still there that I've worked with teams and athletes even in the last year Mm. where it's been kept top secret. Now I always tell them that's fine. (laughs) I never expose or, you know, reveal who I work with anyway. If they want to say I work with MT or Jesse, that's fine, but I won't be the one advertising it. But at the same time, I find it quite funny that we're still in this age in 2019, 2020, where teams were secretly sneaking in sports psychs at a train at the end of a long training session when they're already physically exhausted and expecting and in fairness, you could see some of them responding, but obviously lots of people didn't or couldn't because it was half nine and they were exhausted, you know, and you were always called in before, you know, we're, we've got a big final or we're about to be relegated or we want to go up or we want to go down. The magic wand mindset is still out there. <laughs> oh, it is. It is. And I think I think it, you can just see it's a naivety with people who just haven't been exposed to it and what, you know, what sports psychology is. I think people have this kind of mystical idea of what it is and how it's a one you know, it's a fix, quick fix all. And it's not. People have to engage with it. You know, it's the same way as you wouldn't put a person in a gym and expect them to get stronger by just being there. You can't expect a team to sit in front of a sports psychologist and suddenly have all these mental skills they think they're missing. You know, it takes a bit of work. And I think people have this expectation that this person's going to come in and just motivate us and talk to us and just change all our attitudes in one go. I wish it was that easy, but it's not. <laughs> um, and there is definitely still that attitude of like, keep it on the down low now I don't really want to know I don't want anyone else to know and obviously there's a confidentiality in what's shared but you know no one is embarrassed to say oh, I would go to see a nutritionist even though so you've eaten you've been eating every day since the day you were born but yet people still need help to improve it so why are people not embarrassed to say I actually don't know how to cook or I don't know how to you know feed myself properly to you know to fuel my training people are embarrassed to say that but people are embarrassed to say I get really nervous and I get really big challenges to my confidence I feel really demotivated during training and I don't feel I'm good enough to compete on the the big stage but I'm fine I don't need any help with that you know so it's just it's an attitude that will be slow to change I think it just it's a case of the more people get exposed to it the better the understanding will be and then hopefully the attitudes will follow um, in a positive way Uh, I think still beyond like you you mentioned nutritionists there dietitians physiotherapists people don't Mm. expect them to be miracle workers and they don't expect that you know a physio joined a team and that's why the team won something or you know this physio joined that team and that's why they were terrible that year because that physio messed with their knees and Mm. people still seem to give a lot of or what they I think they still seem to give a lot of power to a sports psychologist or they seem to elevate them to a level that the whole reason a team won something was because this psych worked with them. And I'm constantly Mm. trying to explain to people that if you feel that somebody is a guru or you needed that one person to win, there's something gone wrong somewhere, somewhere with communication or something. I don't know how to explain it. You might do a better job of it. No, I 100% agree. And you see it all the time. How often athletes are 
you know, the likes of the Rory McIlroy's or the Andy Murray's, you know, they've had a, a they've plateaued and they've had a real dip in their career, but they're working with their mental skills coach and they're working with their sports psychologist and look how everything's turned around. So that's where the idea of like they're the quick fixers or they're the magic workers. But yeah, I think there's a lot there's a lot of pressure. And, um, you know, you come into a team or you come into a group or you come in to work with an athlete and people have that idea that, that this is the kind of this is the kind of exposure that a sports psychologist gets is those kind of media headlines to say the sports psychologist came in and turned them around or the England football team were working with sports psychologists and look how far they got in the World Cup now. You know, not to, anything to do with probably changes in the personnel, change in the coach, change in training methods. It was the sports psychologist and how it changed their mindsets. So there's a lot of pressure on us when you come in. And like you said, that first one in, first one out kind of mentality, unfortunately. But, you know, you're there is still that idea that this person is the one, you know, you're going to get the you're going to get the praise or you may get the praise if someone goes if it goes well. But then on the flip side of that, if it doesn't go well, you'd be the first out because it's like, well, they obviously didn't work. It's not a frust- it is a frustrating thing, but it's actually it's kind of nerve wracking. So when you go into a new environment with new people, they kind of have to, if they're not if they're new to sports psychology, they've read about the people who've done this with and turned teams around and made them better. You're looked at as that person that's going to do this. And if you don't pretty early on, it's like this person's obviously not as good as the person I read about, you know, and it's a lot of pressure on us as well. I think something that people, I don't want to use the word confused, but sometimes they mm. think, you know, oh, so-and-so has 22 medals in their pockets. There's so many medals in their pockets, they can't even jingle them. And they think that person has to be better from a psychological point of view for me and my team than maybe somebody who has three or four degrees who might never have been that fit, but just because they understand the mindset doesn't mean they've lived it. So can you understand sometimes why I suppose people may sometimes go to the I don't use the word the wrong sources for information, but people just because they've lived it doesn't mean they can advise, I suppose, is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, I it's something that I've seen a lot. And it's funny when I go in to like a new team or a new group and I pre- present, um, you know, and I'll say I'm Jesse, I'm a sports psychologist in the Institute of Sport and doing a PhD. And you can see it's kind of like, great. Yeah, OK. Heads nodding, not that interested. And they say, um, my background is in athletics. I competed at the Olympics. And suddenly it's like that light bulb, like, oh, okay. Now I want to listen to her. And I'm like, it shouldn't be that way. My, like, I'm on my third degree now in psychology. I'm still finishing a PhD. We won't talk about that. But that's, you know, I've spent over 10 years now studying psychology and sports psychology. So that's where my knowledge of, psychology comes from how I've learned to kind of apply it and understand real world application and kind of develop the empathy was having been an athlete but having been an athlete alone is not enough to be the knowledge or the expert because as an athlete your opinion your worldview is going to be colored by your perspective and your experience and I think it's really important to have the more holistic and kind of have the broader and more objective view of the way you apply and you know situations and performance not just from my individual perspective in my sport under my you know and who I trained with and who I was trained by and what we did because everything every single individual is different every team is different um it was funny I was on a RT1 on um their Saturday sports show I'd say it was last year at least um and I was talking Joanne um Joanne Cantwell was the uh, presenter 
And, you know, she was talking, she was interviewing me and there was a couple of others on the panel and something came in about mental skills coaches. And I think uh, Dougie Howlett was working with the core curling team at the time. And I was like, God, amazing. What an amazing, um, you know, person to have and the experience. And I said, and someone asked me, oh, what are my thoughts on that and what he's doing or mental skills coaches? And I said, I don't really know because I don't know what he does. Like a mental skills coach could do anything. Or I think he was just he was like a mental skills or kind of like a a skills coach. So some words that they use. And I was like, it's not really I don't know what he does. He could be advising on anything from psychology to nutrition to trap to tactics to training. So I'm not really one to say that, you know, what he's doing is good or bad for the team. I'm sure what he's doing is great. And I they got a text in to say, give me Dougie Howlett with all the experience he has over that one with her PhD any day. And that was exactly the attitude. The text came in and Joanne just laughed and said, oh, yeah, PhD, but has also completed at the Olympics. Uh, I don't is does that experience not qualify for you, listener? Um, and it was just it was it was that always stuck in my head. I was like, is that always the battle you're up against if you don't have the experience? And I just don't think it's fair. You wouldn't judge a surgeon by how many surgeries they've had on them in sport. That's the opinion and I think look it's changing it definitely is and I think there's more of an exposure to sports psychology but there is still that attitude of like give me the person who's won things and I'm like particularly if if someone has won something there was a whole team behind them it's very rare that someone goes on and wins at a high level whatever the sport is on their own there was coaches and physios and support staff and training partners and teammates that all helped get them there so that one person is not necessarily the expert. Some people, you know, it's like that. Some athletes make great coaches and some don't. I don't think I'd be a great coach just because I did it. Um, but my skill set is in working with people from the mental side. So, um, yeah, it can be an unfair kind of, you know, decision to make that you pick someone based on what they've done, not necessarily what they know. And it's, it gives people who haven't, haven't experienced that level of sport you know it's it gives it they're already at a disadvantage and I don't think that's fair but yeah look it's something that hopefully will change at at Uh, that point I think if anybody still feels sympathy for sports psychologists and (laughs) be it a player or a coach or an athlete or a team or or a parent if somebody's (laughs) listening to this and they decide actually I do think I want to engage with a sports psychologist either for myself or I think somebody else what's the best way would you recommend for people to go looking for a sports psych to work with them yeah so I suppose like there's um it's it's a hard one actually because we don't have like a sports psychology database where you find all the sports psychologists so where you would go is probably through the institute of sport and we don't have like our own website so you go to the institute of sport and that's where they would have the list of all the accredited service providers so across the board in all the services physio doctors snc sports psychologists are on that list as well so that's probably a good starting point is to see who's on that list you get your contact details get in touch with them and then it can be when you get in touch with those people often it's a process of referral because maybe you might get in touch someone might get in touch with you and you're at a part of the country and you're like you're in Kerry and I'm up here. It's not going to work, but I know someone who's closer to you. Here's their number. I would recommend them. And that's what I found a lot of the work that I get is either through someone has found my name and my email on the Institute website, got in touch, or it's been a referral from Kate Kirby, who I work with in the Institute, who said, I can't take them on. I don't have the capacity. They live at the other side of the country. You live closer. 
Um, but I think your best starting point is go to the institute. You know the the person will have the right qualifications. They are accredited by their by the government bo- governing body, and they, that's where you, it's a good starting point. <laughs>